bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about book plagiarism, Harvard student gone bad. This is kind of a Cinderella story with a not very happy ending. To hear Kavya Viswanathan, the author, tell it, she was merely unconsciously and inadvertently repeating favorite passages of her favorite authors in her first novel, for which she was paid an outrageous sum. Today, uh, my guests and I are going to be talking to you about this and the state of publishing today. Um, We're going to be joined a little later in the show by Harvard Independent Editor and Writer Shane Wilson, who was right in on what the events as they were enrolling, unfolding and <laughs> enrolling at the Harvard campus. And two experts in book publishing and writing, Dan Pointer and Brian Taylor. But before I go to um, my guests, I do want to give you an example, tell you a little bit about the story and give you an example of um, some of this plagiarism. Um, the story is about a young woman who uh, was admitted to Harvard. Her parents wanted to go, her to go to an Ivy League school, and they hired a consultant uh, to help her get into a school. And this consultant had some connections, and um, uh, to sort of make a long story short, she wound up um, getting uh, Kava a book deal with a, um, a very respected publisher, and it was a two-book deal for $500,000. She got this when she was 17, and this was the idea of it was to make her more appealing to Harvard. Well, somewhere along the line, whether we're going to uh, put the blame, you know, somewhat on parents who were um, being pushy of their child, wanting her to get into an Ivy League school as much for their own um, benefit as hers, or a um, a young woman who was arrogant and thought that no one would notice that she stole some um, paragraphs and themes from not only one writer, but it's now come out that there are other writers that she stole from as well. And um, perhaps she thought that that no one was going to be smart enough to put all of this together and see all of the the different references to these other uh, books and similarities. Whatever the, perhaps it has to do with publishing itself, we'll be hearing about this from my guests. But let me um, tell you an example of the um, the first one that she was uh, was um, thought to have copied was in her book. The book that uh, Kavya wrote was How Opal Meta Got Kissed, Got Wild, and Got a Life, which was a book about uh, basically a somewhat autobiographical in the sense that um, she related to that character and who was applying to a, to college and um, was told that she couldn't get in because she needed to get more of a life. Um, she also got a movie deal for this book with DreamWorks. Um, so 
it turned out that she had copied a number of passages, 40 apparently, that were very similar, from an author, Megan McCafferty, and uh, two books from this author, and they were called Sloppy Firsts and Second Helpings. Um, But then it more recently, just recently, came out that there are some other books as well. One of them was a book called Can You Keep a Secret by Sophie Kinsella, uh, which is, she's the author of the Shopaholic uh, series of what's called Chick Lit. And an example of this, of the book that was the, the two similar passages, was in the book Can You Keep a Secret? A character finds two friends, quote, in a full-scale argument about animal rights, unquote, in which one friend says, quote, the mink like being made into coats, unquote. In the book that Kavya wrote, uh, two characters are discovered in, quote, a full-fledged debate over animal rights, unquote, in which one says, quote, the foxes want to be made into scarves, unquote. So here we have um, uh, minks <laughs> wanting to be made into coats and foxes wanting to be made into scarves. Uh, there were also similarities to um, a book by Meg Cabot called The Princess Diaries, In Cabot's book, The Princess Diaries, um, she wrote, uh, There isn't a single inch of me that hasn't been pinched, cut, filed, painted, sloughed, blown dry, or moisturized because I don't look a thing like Mia Thermopolis. Mia Thermopolis never had fingernails. Mia Thermopolis never had blonde highlights. Mia Thermopolis never wore makeup or Gucci shoes or Chanel skirts or Christian Dior bras, which, by the way, don't even come in 32A, which is my size. I don't even know who I am anymore. It certainly isn't Mia Thermopolis. She's turning me into someone else. Now, compare that to what Kavya wrote in her book. Every inch of me had been cut, filed, steamed, exfoliated, polished, painted, or moisturized. I didn't look a thing like Opal Meta. Opal Meta didn't own five pairs of shoes so expensive they could have been traded in for a small sailboat. She didn't wear makeup or Manolo Blahniks or Chanel sunglasses, or habitual jeans, or Le Paris bras. She never owned enough cashmere to make her concern for the future of the Kazakhstani, I give up, mountain goat population. I was turning into someone else. Now, I think that says quite a bit, and now I will go to my guests, <laughs> Dan Pointer and Brian Taylor. So, Dan, why don't we start with you? Well, what do you have to say about all of this? It's one thing to read a lot of books and come up with an idea and write your book, but it's another to take par- another thing to take paragraphs out of one or two books and then rewrite the paragraphs, which is apparently what's happened here. But let me explain uh, to you and your listeners how this sort of thing happens. Uh, I've written a lot of books, and when you're yes, reading, yes, a hundred more than a hundred. <laughs> yes, and when you're writing books, you do a lot of research. All books are written from other books. It doesn't matter if it's fiction or nonfiction. Uh, you read a lot of materials. And in nonfiction, of course, you read other books, you read magazine articles, you interview people, you take a lot of information, and you focus it towards a particular kind of reader. And you say it in your own words, and you give them exactly what they need. In this case, it's fiction, and she read a lot of books and sort of got into the groove, um, and she was focusing this um, as a chiclet novel. But what she did, apparently, uh, was to take whole paragraphs out of other books and rewrite the paragraphs. Now, the way this happens, 
um, is that quite often during your research, you'll pull pieces out of other books, uh, magazine articles, and so on, and you kind of lay them out, and then uh, you, what, paraphrase them. And it's even easier today when the books are available in um, what ebook format and electronic files because you could just do a copy paste on a whole paragraph and put it into your manuscript with every intention of rewriting it later. And sometimes it does get rewritten a little bit, and sometimes it doesn't get rewritten. It's word for word, and a number of very high-profile, best-selling authors have been caught taking whole paragraphs word for word from other people's books. Um, there's, um, as I said, there's every intention of, of rewriting it later, and sometimes it doesn't happen. In this particular case, it would appear that she paraphrased, and then it was further rewritten by, um, was it somebody at Alloy Entertainment? Well, that was her book packager. The book packager uh, did but a I'm little more sure. rewriting, but not enough, apparently. Mm-hmm. But that, I think that's the way this sort of thing comes about. But, of course, don't you think, I mean, it's such a tremendous disservice. Um, you know, you can almost understand it a little bit more when it's a, when it's a um, nonfiction book. But on the other hand, even that, you know, it so, does such a disservice to the original authors who didn't cut and paste and, you know, did, had their own thoughts and did their own research uh, to begin with. Well, it's also a disservice to the reader. I mean, if you're reading a certain type of book, in this case, Chiclet, and you come across something that's really familiar because you read the other book just a couple of weeks ago, that's a disservice to the reader. Yes, absolutely. Um, Brian, what, what, what is your first perspective? Well, I think that, you know, unfortunately, I think Kaba uh, has she has a problem here. Uh, whether she knowingly or unknowingly wrote similar passages to Megan McCafferty's books, the fact is that her style and expression is indeed very similar, if not identical, with with a few with a few uh, rewritten words. Uh, you know, Little Brown must feel that uh, Random House has a substantial case against them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have incurred the huge expense of pulling 55,000 yes. books out of distribution. Yes. Uh, the, but I think that it, it, it goes to, <clears throat> well, there's a legal doctrine out there called, uh, I believe it's Scenes Affair, which, which speaks to copyright infringement, and it simply states, uh, as Ivan Hoffman explains, who, who's a, an attorney who specializes in publishing law, that courts will not protect a, a, a copyrighted work from infringement if the expression embodied in the work necessarily flows from a commonplace idea. And, and basically all that says is that there are only a few ways to, to express a commonplace idea. So this, to me, talks about a speaks to a much bigger issue that, that publishers have. You know, we're, we're in a culture of pop consumerism, and many publishers too often accept the easier path to formulate fiction and nonfiction within specific book genres. So publishers, you know, if they're going to continue to produce stylistically indistinguishable books yeah. with regurgitated storylines, then they should continue to expect some some measure of, of infringement issues. Um, the, 
you know, they should expect that many of the books they produce are going to be cut from, from cookie cutters, frankly. And, and the, you know, the expression issue in, in this matter, uh, you know, although the, the passages are strikingly similar and, you know, as, as Kaba explains, she, she has a photographic memory and she internalized these passages and, and so that is the source from which they came and she did not intentionally copy them. Um, Are you saying that you believe that? Do I believe that? Yes. I I don't know what I believe in this case. I would like to believe her. I would like to trust that people are are telling me the truth. But but really, I I guess we'll we'll never know. And 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 that's why the courts exist. So if this if this goes to if this does go to court, you know, I, I think that Little Brown may have a problem. Like I said, otherwise they wouldn't have pulled fifty five books from the marketplace. But it, when you're talking about this type of expression with uh, same-style books, especially uh, teen-lit and chick-lit, you know, it's like claiming that, uh, that all the stores in the mall stole each other's fashion design when the bottom line is that all the jeans today are simply cut from, cut from the same fashion because that is the trend that the fashion designers have pushed into the marketplace. So I think that publishers have created a problem for themselves, and whether it's teen-lit or whether it's self-help or whether it's business books and talking about, you know, the five principles of success or the five principles of growth. You know, really, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible says there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> but, but Kava, really, she does have a problem because there, there is copyright infringement. And, and it's really less an issue of plagiarism uh, than it is copyright infringement, which, you know, unfortunately for her, I, I do believe there's a case there. Okay, well, when we come back, we'll talk more about this, uh, similarities, these coincidences in the paragraph, with my guests, Dan Pointer and Ryan Taylor, both experts in the publishing industry and uh, consultants, and um, also we'll be joined uh, soon by the writer and uh, editor from the Harvard Independent to hear about how this all originally became discovered. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadilocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors, cried the second. I hope it has a bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. Education, healthcare, environmental protection, the war in Iraq, taxes, poverty, abortion, the economy, crime, social security, it's all around us. What are the key issues? How does it affect you? Whether you stand to the left of the political aisle or to the right, Make Your Point with Melanie Brenner is your platform for straight political talk without an agenda. Melanie, one of the top Democratic strategic communications experts in the country, and her guests, political staffers and consultants behind the elected officials, as well as arts and entertainment icons, discuss the issues relevant to our day-to-day lives. Make Your Point with Melanie Brenner, broadcast each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Channel. Don't just sit there. Make Your Point. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 866 472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about um, plagiarism, although although before the break, um, my guest Brian Taylor, and we're also speaking with my guest Dan Pointer. They're both experts, the experts in the publishing industry and consultants, um, so they're going to be talking a little bit at the end, too, about giving you some tips if you have a book in you. Um, but before the break, Brian was making a distinction that he thought that what uh, Kavya did in copying or um, unconsciously regurgitating words from other authors was a copyright infringement rather than plagiarism, and I just wondered what the difference was. Well, I think that plagiarism is a much more broad term where copyright infringement is a much more specific term that has to do with uh, protecting the expression of an idea. Uh, Copyright infringement does not necessarily uh, protect the idea itself or the concept. Plagiarism, I think, is 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 a much more loose term that sort of incorporates all of that. It's the practice of copying a, a, a concept, uh, whereas plagiarism normally is not considered a crime per se. Uh, it, it's certainly unethical. Um, copyright infringement is punishable by law. Uh-huh. So, like, well, well, Brian, what happened to the case of the Da Vinci Code then? 
Well, that is a that is why they the Da Vinci Code won their case because it is because they they uh, as as far as I know the judge mandated that the those concepts or those ideas already existed out there and copyright could not be placed on them. Pardon me? Yeah. Oh. And, okay, and, and Dan, why, what were you thinking about that? No, I just, just uh, thought that that would be an interesting thing to have uh, Brian comment on because it what, further explains what's going on today in publishing. Yes. Uh, now that he has defined plagiarism versus copyright, yes. and I just thought the next step would be to yes, and and that was a that we can talk about that. Um, uh, that I was disappointed in that ruling, but why don't we go now? Um, we're being joined now um, by Shane Wilson. He is a writer and uh, executive editor for the Harvard Independent, which I guess is the rival newspaper of the Harvard Crimson. Am I right, Shane? <laughs> Well, it's something of a rival. The, the Crimson's a daily and we're a weekly, so we're not exactly competing on the same <laughs> ground, but yeah. Well, why don't you tell us about what, uh, I understand that, that, um, it was the Crimson, or perhaps it was your, I, I'm one of the Harvard papers that actually broke this story, which is kind of an interesting thought, um, sort of t- tattling on one of your own, uh, <laughs> well, if not friends, I guess colleagues or fellow students. Yeah, well, um, the Crimson, not us, uh, broke the story initially. Although it's interesting because they weren't, um, it's not as if they were reading through the book and comparing it to other books. Um, I believe they received it from an anonymous tip um, huh. sent in by email from their website. Um, so it's not quite really? clear where, where the original story came from. Um, but uh, as for sort of tattling, I think that's something that, that everyone's been kind of sensitive to on campus um, whether or not people are kind of taking too much pleasure in in this girl's sort of humiliation or or whatever you want to call it publicly, um, and that maybe um, people should restrain themselves. Uh, I'm not particularly partial to that position myself, but um, there's definitely been a backlash, I think, towards um, uh, people sort of piling on to Kavya and um, not not letting her have uh, uh, her side of the story, I suppose. Well, I mean, I imagine that, um, I mean, have has your paper given her the opportunity to do an interview or to write something to explain herself? Um, we've called her a few times, and um, sure enough, she doesn't answer her phone. Um, I think the Crimson has had a similar experience. She's granted interviews recently to, to the New York Times and um, to, to Kate Couric, um, but I suppose we're not exactly the same caliber, and I doubt she really... Um, the impression that I get is that she's trying to sort of stay out of the public eye, hoping the story will blow over. But since uh, just today, you know, there's been revelations of um, possibly that passages were taken from uh, from three other books in addition to the ones already involved, um, and the accusations have been printed so far. It seems like she's really not going to be able to to let it blow over. So, what do you and what do some of the other people think in regard to? I mean, I guess it was bad enough. I know, I know, actually, at the beginning of the show, I read some, um, are you thinking of Can You Keep a Secret? And yeah, yeah. Um, Salman Rushdie's children's book, Haroon, mm-hmm. and what was the other one? Um, it was um, The Princess Diaries. Oh, that's right. Um, I, that's right. Yes. I read that. Yes, I read some passages of that. And, um, I mean, it certainly does seem, if she thought that she was going to be able to get away with saying that it was just, 
you know, something that went into her unconscious and kind of came out on the page, similar <laughs> to uh, to the way it had been written originally. Um, it, it gets a lot harder when there are more and more books that that seem to have been put into her unconscious. So, what are people talking about on campus in regard to that? Well. To be honest, I think that most of us thought that the story was sort of petering out by the end of last week um, because she had made several public statements about it, and, and it seemed like most people were not really buying the um, photographic memory slash um, unintentional, unconscious copying excuse, but it seemed like it was going to be what stuck. Um, as for the, the revelations today, um, which seem to have been mostly made by independent sort of people online, bloggers, uh, just, just trying to... Um, investigate this on their own. Um, I think people are, are really starting to pay attention again, wondering if she is going to have to make another public statement, or does she think that it's just really unclear? Um, because it's already been reported that her her movie deal possibly is in jeopardy. Um, I think a variety of report that's being pulled. You know, originally she was signed to a two book deal, um, and and. The publishers seem to be suggesting that the second book would come out, and that the that her first book would just be reprinted with changes. Well, if they're if they're near the end of the changes they need to um, undo the previous instances of copying, now they're met with mm. you know several other passages. It does seem like um, they're going to need to respond again. I think people are just sort of waiting to see um, how these companies react because so far it's just been sort of the news of these these other similarities, and who knows you know if there will be more. I mean, right. I think that's another. Um, another possibility, have we even begun to, to see where the sources of some of the stuff is from? Um, because it's not word-for-word word usually. It's not word-for-word word copying in a way that you can sort of look for on a computer, really. Mm, it's mm. People, these people who are finding the, the similarities have been very familiar with the novels that are being copied from themselves. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure when we're really going to get to the bottom of this or, or what kind of excuse is going to be marshaled in response. Well, I would imagine that this is a good opportunity for some classes, some teachers, and um, or even just students amongst themselves to talk about the issue of ethics. And um, is there a, is there a chance that um, that she may be let go from school? Not so much because of um, like the legal implications of what she did, but just because of not wanting to have a student who would be that unethical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something else. It's it's up in the air. The administration hasn't really wanted to get involved in the story. They've been trying to kind of to issue no comments and refer reporters to other public relations people who then say no comment also. So they're really trying to sit this one out, I think. Um, but I, the problem with that is I think they're really getting pressure, certainly from, the, from certain alumni, saying that, you know, Harvard's been really getting a bad name in this whole thing. Yeah. Um, there have been several recent scandals involving this kind of unethical basically writing-related behavior from students. And um, uh, I think usually the policies that, that Harvard has in place for, for plagiarism, you know, as you suggested, don't really cover this case because it's not, she's not doing an academic work. She's not, right. it's not sort of her as a scholar um, possibly, you know, committing these, these violations, but it's her and her sort of other existence, not as a student. I think that, that um, the administration um, of Harvard doesn't know whether, if, it, it, even if it tries to sort of press this point, is it going to be worth it because she can argue that, um, that it wasn't in her capacity as a Harvard student, whether or not she, she was right or wrong. So um, I think that they're also sort of hoping that, that the story will blow over. Um, but among, among students, I think some people 
do feel sort of um, reluctant to jump on her because some people sort of feel guilty about what they've done themselves in the past, you know, on a much more minor scale, not for a $500,000 novel, but, um, but for, for papers for classes, you know, whether everyone at Harvard is, is being perfectly honest and mm. citing things perfectly accurately is something that I've heard people, people bring up, you know, mm. are we all sort of to blame um, and, and kind of involved in a culture where, um, you know, if, it, if it's late at night on, on Sunday and your papers due Monday, are you really being, um, being proper in your citation method or, or are you doing something similar to what Kavya possibly did? Mm, that's interesting. And, well, just one last question. Do you think um, that the admission process has gotten so competitive that there are many people being forced to go to these consultants and come up with these sort of... Um, really amazing kinds of results like having a $500,000 book mm-hmm. deal before getting in in order to be to get in. Mm-hmm. Well, I think actually from the timeline that has been released so far, it seems like she was signed with a talent agency before she got into Harvard, but right. she did not actually yet have the book deal just for that minor point. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, something that definitely the Independent has been covering is this angle of, of the college counselor kind of industry. And um, if you read the kind of press material that the Ivy Wise, which is the company that Kavya um, worked with for application, the kind of material they're putting out, they're basically saying that um, because of things like affirmative action, um, that wealthy students are at a disadvantage, and that this is this is the kind. Of, I mean, I'm not sure I really buy that argument, but um, that, that that these kind of desperate measures of paying ten to thirty thousand um, dollars to kind of be to be packaged basically as a student as much as she was packaged as a novelist. Um, yes. well, I mean, they're kind of claiming that it's necessary because of um, colleges being interested in, in diversity. Um, yes. yes. But well, it, we, it, do, it, that, we uh, do need to take a break now, but we'll come back. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, we're talking today about um, plagiarism and um, the incident that occurred to a Harvard student or uh, caused by a Harvard student um, where... I'm so caught up in what we're talking about. (laughs) You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We'll talk more with my guests when we come back. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dogs. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Getterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, our guest is Jamie Bamber. 
You'll know him from Battlestar Galactica. He plays Leodama. We talk about Battlestar Galactica and get a look inside of Jamie's life. Of course, we'll cover all the sci-fi news for the week as usual. That's Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about the Cinderella story gone bad, the story of Kavya Biswanathan, um, who published a book, had a book published, uh, that turned out to have many similarities to some other books that she had read. Let me reintroduce my guest. It's a sort of embarrass de richesse here. Um, we have Dan Pointer. He is in a consultant and an expert in the book publishing industry. Um, his book, The Self-Publisher's Manual, is in its 15th edition, and that just came out. He's also the author of 100 other books. Uh, Brian Taylor, also an expert in the publishing industry and a consultant and book marketer. He's a, uh, he has assisted uh, hundreds of book publishers, and uh, he's garnered many publishing awards for his client. And uh, both of them are expert strategists and, and help people get in print, basically. And we'll talk about uh, some tips that you can give people when we come back. We're also talking to Harvard Independent uh, editor and writer Shane Wilson, who's been sort of giving us an inside scoop of what actually is, has been going on on the Harvard campus, um, where Kavya is a sophomore now. So before you, I, I, we sort of had, had to interrupt what you were saying, Shane, as the um, for the break. But could you continue with what? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think. Uh, you're talking about how difficult that... it was to, and, and sort of to even the play, playing field, these consultant mm-hmm. groups have um, have come up. Now, I know that I think it was Brian or, or Dan who wanted to ask a question. Yes, I have you? a question. Uh, could you, Shane, I, could you I say who it is since there are three males here? This is Dan Pointer in Santa okay. Barbara. Shane, you yes. uh, mentioned that Kavio was uh, interviewed by Katie Couric and also by the New York Times. And I'm just curious, uh, do you know whether she was paid for those interviews? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think I've been, we've all been assuming that she wasn't. Um, but but I, no, I don't think anyone's really even uh, looked at that issue. Um, but it, it seemed like it was more, I mean, the impression they gave was more that she was, she felt it was necessary to, to say something publicly, that, that her initial no comment was not adequate, um, that she picked her two high-profile venues to say it, and it was going to try to, avoid anything further, but whether um, there was any other motivation for her speaking, um, I don't know. I haven't heard anyone accusing her of that. But Now, I heard That's actually... another question. I, 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 well, this one, on the same topic, I, um, I read, I didn't see that interview with Katie Couric, but I read that it was rather harsh, which I think was probably very appropriate. Do you, did you see it? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty harsh. Um, at the end, it seemed like that Kavi was trying to 
to say, you know, she, she there's something along the lines that she thought, you know, she just explained the best she could, and Katie Kirk said, you know, some people would say that you haven't explained at all, mm-hmm. something along those lines. So um, mm-hmm. I think um, it was it was pretty stern treatment, um, but anything less probably would have would have looked pretty bad for on the Kirk side. So I suppose they couldn't just give her a softball interview right. um, since she had been sort of a media darling um, before this point. You know, she had there were plenty of pretty sort of glowing um, profile articles about her. Um, the reviews were, were fairly positive. So um, I think some people in the media, thought, you know, they, they, it's in the mainstream media, not, you know, the campus or anything, but um, they would have to be kind of tough on her because they, they sort of gave her such an easy time of it beforehand. Now, Brian, were you going to be asking, was that you who wanted to ask a question? Well, I, I didn't, it wasn't so much a question as just a, as just a comment. I you know, again, I, I stated earlier that I, I think that Kavya has, she, you know, she has a problem here, uh, and she's certainly not exempt from from owning up to uh, her responsibility uh, in this matter. But, but just just like in the James Fry case with a million little pieces, I, I think that within the media and within the publishing industry, I I really see a really a lack of focus on the publisher themselves. I think that, yes, indeed, this is Kavya's writing. It was James Fry's writing. It was his fabrication of, of his story and exaggerating the truth. Yet, in his case, Random House, uh, what, you know, they went for weeks without uh, accepting full responsibility for the issue, mm-hmm. citing that they relied on the trust relationship that they had with James Fry and relied on his repeated claims to them that his story was wholly truthful. And I think that, you know, readers are, readers are victims of what they read unless they question what it is mm-hmm. they're reading. And I believe that a publisher has an ethical responsibility to to fully investigate the authors that they're signing for a $500,000 advance, uh, authors that uh, whose rights they're they're selling to, um, I believe it's uh, DreamWorks in in Kavya's case. Uh, you know, they they in my opinion, I think publishers really need to do their homework in this case. They they need to be responsible for three things: more closely critiquing uh, the author's content and in this case, expression, to ensure that it's not copycat. And, and I would think that editors of a given publishing house uh, would know their genre so inside and out that they would be able to, to notice this. Two, exhaustive fact-checking uh, by the editorial staff, which in James Fry's case was not done at all. Uh, and, and, and then number three, really just simply producing better more unique books than yeah. rather than merely following the trend. Yes. I mean, that is really rather embarrassing that um, not just, you know, that the plagiarism exists, but that here book publishers and even reviewers um, didn't notice. I mean, that it took people who, whoever, whoever it was who gave this, I mean, presumably whoever gave the anonymous tip was some jealous friend or, or yes. acquaintance of Kavya, but that it took people like with this New York Times, someone who wrote into the New York Times saying that it was similar to uh, Can You Keep a Secret? These are just ordinary people, and yet the publishers and the reviewers didn't notice these similarities. You would think they would have more knowledge of these other books. Mm -hmm. Can I make a comment on that? Sure. 
Um, what's, what's also what's more interesting in this case and than possibly in the James Fry case is that I understand that was just sort of a straight deal between Fry and his publisher. But here, and this is something the Independent has been focusing on a lot, is um, there's another party, which is the, the book packaging company. Yes. Because um, Kavya, when Kavya was signed um, by the William Morris agency, she wasn't sort of handed directly to Little Brown, the, the company that eventually published her book. She was handed to a company called 17th Street Productions, which is a division of, of Alloy Entertainment a company that has produced um, Sweet Valley Twins book series, uh, other popular sort of quote-unquote chick-lit book series like Gossip Girl and so on. And, and you know, this company has also has been a, an intermediary. So whether um, whether it was really even Kavya's, all, all Kavya's writing or possibly that the, the plagiarism mm. um, was inserted by someone at the mm. packaging company because okay. they do really extensive jobs. I mean, from what I understand, they have you know, often teams of writers whose names don't necessarily show up on the covers of these books. Mm. Um, and, and they're sort of often under very intense deadline pressure um, and whether they, they need to sort of get this book out or just didn't, didn't care that much and, and threw in passages from other recently popular books in a similar genre uh, versus Kavya, a person who in public has expressed her literary tastes are, are you know, Ian McEwen and Remains of the Day, etc., not chiclet novels. I mean, ever ever since she sort of admitted to unintentionally copying, she said that she's been a really big fan, at least of the, the two books that the initial charges came from. But in previous statements to the press, she never said she was a big reader of that genre at all. Um, so whether she even has read these books or whether this is just sort of the best face that the company, the publisher and the packaging company can put on the situation, um, that's something that I think has yet to be really uh, investigated as much as it should be. Yes, that's an interesting thought. It could really be the fault of some other people as well. Um, Dan, yes, Brian, would you any comments? Well, I think that packagers. Uh, you know, that's a very good point. I, I I've read the same thing in the in uh, in numerous articles. Uh, you know, book packagers. Their their job is to really put together a book idea, and they. They indeed do intensive research uh, on books that exist in the marketplace and to uh, put together a book proposal for a given publisher that really fits that marketplace and, and fits the publisher's program. And, and, and I, I do think that editors uh, at publishing houses are under uh, very strong deadlines and in many cases uh, will review a proposal by a book packager and you know, perhaps in this case, just accept it at face value. Um, so I, I agree that there needs to be more investigation of, of Alloy and 17.3 Productions. You know, when we come back, maybe um, we can talk a little bit about is this new, uh, I mean, is it a new trend that it's, it's not just going directly, a writer doesn't go directly to the publisher, but now you, you have a better chance if you go to a book packager. So we need to take a break, but perhaps we can... Uh, touch on that when we get back. We're talking today about a Cinderella story gone bad, hap- an unhappy ending, with my guests, Dan Pointer and Brian Taylor, experts in publishing and writing, and um, Harvard Independent Editor and Writer, Shane Wilson. So stay tuned, come back, join us as we finish up the hour on Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Unlimited talk at your fingertips, voiceamerica.com. 
West Coast Business Review and host Amy Campbell presents Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific Time on VoiceAmericaRadio.com. Visit our website at www.WestCoastBusinessReview.com. West Coast Business Review's Show Me the Business, connecting you to the business world. World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the Voice America channel, Fridays at 2 p.m. The results indicate your child has neuroblastoma. There's evidence of metastasis. We need to, a we'll need to perform a surgery. After you hear your child has cancer, chances are you don't hear anything else. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show... Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're talking today about Kavya Viswanathan, um, her Cinderella story that didn't have a happy ending. We're talking about plagiarism with my guests, Dan Pointer and Brian Taylor, both experts in the book publishing industry, and Harvard Independent editor and writer, Shane Wilson. Um, so what about that? We were... Talking, I asked the question before the break about this new role of book packagers. Is that what a writer uh, should be looking to find before? I mean, is that instead of an agent, or where where does that fit in? Well, I'll address that. Typically, okay. book Could packagers. You who, who are we? Who's uh, I'm sorry, this is Dan Pointer in okay. Santa Barbara. Uh, typically, book packagers or book producers would. Uh, take the concept, put the book together, and deliver it to the publisher. Sometimes the publisher would go to the packager and say, uh, we need a book to, uh, on a particular subject to round out our line. Would you do a book for us? Um, and that's the way it typically has happened in the past. This was a little different where they took something existing and sent it off to a book packager. In the past, I think we sent books off to people called book doctors, people who took the manuscript and cleaned it up and Englished it up and made it better. I think one of the problems that we're having today is that the larger publishers really are faced with a quantity situation as opposed to a quality situation. You know, more than 200,000 books are published each year. That's more than 500 per day. There's a huge number of books or titles being published and people are under a great deal of financial pressure to pump out the books, and they're just not spending a sufficient amount of time on the quality. They're not doing the fact-checking. They're not doing the, uh, uh, well, 
and just not not checking the, the books or not checking the uh, authors and so on the way they used to. There used to be a relationship between the authors and the acquisition editors at the publishing companies, and they're really not. Um, there isn't that kind of a relationship anymore. So times have changed, and I think we're losing out on quality. And Brian, what do, what do you think? I well, mean, is there? I mean, in this example, it had to do there was there's something being made of the fact that the um, the consultant um, that that um, Kavya had to get her into an Ivy League school was the one who had personal contacts with William Morris, who presumably had personal contacts with a book publisher. Um, is it is it still a lot based on personal contacts? Actually, no. It's well. It's for the author. Uh, it's not based on personal contact because it's virtually impossible for an unknown author to uh, submit over the transom, as they say, to a publishing house and and have a manuscript reviewed. Unless, of course, someone in the family knows somebody. In in Kavya's case, this is actually the way that uh, being accepted by a publisher works these days. Um, at any writer's conference you go to, uh, there will be publishers and agents there presenting information to the writers, and they will tell you that it's virtually impossible to go the traditional route. In today's marketplace, writers have to go to agents. They but have an to be agent or a book packager? Well, it, it, can, it can go either way. Uh, you know, book packagers are different uh, from agents uh, in that they will write a book proposal they will book packagers put the whole package together they essentially invent books so so if an author an author can approach a book packager and submit an idea to them and if they're accepted by the book packager then the book packager will propose to a publisher that they put the book together for them in the case of an agent an author will submit the manuscript to an agent and an agent merely represents right. the manuscript then to the publisher, but really doesn't uh, uh, take a proactive role in producing the book for the publisher. Well, do you think because there is such a such pressure to get more books out more quickly for whatever reason, I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense since there are less, there's only a certain number of readers, but um, in this pressure, because of this pressure, do publishers tend now to more and more prefer packages? So let me answer, let me ask the, answer that question for you. Um, agents used to have a personal relationship with the authors, and they used to do some editing and, and kind of not the same kind of packaging, but they put the package together. The agent does two specific things. Number one, they match the manuscript to the particular publisher. Mm-hmm. The second thing they do is they uh, negotiate the contract. Those are the two basic things that they do. The problem now is that the big publishers are consolidating, they're downsizing, and they're letting people go. And a lot of those people uh, know the book industry, so they become agents. Mm. And because there are, there are only six large publishers left in New York, there are only about nine that will give a decent advance. And so the, pub, the agents have fewer and fewer people to sell to. Hmm. And now they're dealing on quantity, not quality. They can't spend time on manuscripts. When they get a manuscript, they'll look it over very quickly. They reject most of them. If they see something that looks interesting, they'll send it back for uh, a proposal rewrite, and it goes back and forth. They make the um, the author do everything, whereas they used to help with the proposal. And uh, they're just dealing on quantity now, not quality. And, and I, you know, that's a very important point because I think that this whole practice of... 
you know, just economics, really, uh, has led to the whole self-publishing revolution in publishing that that includes self-publishing, that includes print-on-demand publishing, uh, that includes the growth of co-op presses and vanity presses. And, you know, in today's marketplace, there really are uh, many more ways to introduce a book to the marketplace than traditional publishing. And, And that's precisely why we have 200,000 new books being published every year. It's not that the major trade presses are releasing this uh, number of, of books. It's, it's due to, the st- to start up small, mid-size, and self-publishing houses. Uh, you know, having said that, it, it's, it's difficult. Your question to me was, you know, should, what should a writer do? Should they go to an agent? Should they go directly to a publisher or to a packager? I think that if if a writer has solid content, they're an expert in their field, they have an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and they work with the right firms and consultants to produce a book uh, and get help getting that book distribution, they're going to do very well. They may not sell 100,000 books right out, right out of the gate, uh, but it can be a very good start. And, and, and many self-published books or books produced uh, by mid-sized publishers, do go on to become a part of major trade presses. That, that is, of course, if the author's willing to give up the, uh, you know, the, the 100% of the net sales that they're getting from those books, which, you know, in lieu of an advance of, you know, 10,000, 20,000, what have you, uh, is, is really not very much. Well, Let me give you some numbers, Carol. Yeah. There are six large publishers in New York. There are three to 400 medium-sized publishers across the United States, hmm. and there are 81,000 self-publishers. Hmm. The small publishers put out 78% of all the titles and do 55% of the dollar volume. What that means is that the large publishers are concentrating on the celebrities, people who can bring an audience with them. Uh, that's why they you know, published Madonna's children's book and... and uh, what, the book that was written by Paris Hilton's dog, another great <laughs> contribution to literature. Um, when he was taking a walk. <laughs> they're, they're concentrating on books like that. And uh, so for the smaller, newer publisher or smaller, newer author, uh, they really don't have a choice anymore. And uh, they've soon realized that if they publish themselves, they're going to make more money, get to press sooner, and keep control of the work. And, and those books that the major trade, you know, again, that goes back to what we talked about early in the conversation about pop consumerism uh, and trend and fashion. It's, it's really pop culture, and, and I think that this is why major trade presses are having the problems they're having with copyright infringement and plagiarism. Well, I want to make sure that I have enough time to um, give out the websites of um, Dan and Brian so that all of you writers wannabe writers or, or already writers um, out there who would like some consultation to navigate the minefields of publishing these days, you will be able to reach them. Um, I think that um, as a psychiatrist, it's kind of, I found it interesting that Kavya did say that uh, unconsciously, you know, this is what she remembered of these uh, books on, on an unconscious level, and it just came out. Um, that's not usually how the unconscious works in full sentences with so many similarities. Um, I guess that's why she had to throw in the photographic memory in there. 
But anyway, I would like to thank my guests. Let me start out with Shane Wilson. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, he is the executive editor and a writer from the Harvard Independent, and needless to say, I'm sure that this um, this controversy will give you many additional <laughs> issues to uh, to discuss it in, because it really is sort of a Rorschach test that uh, there are so many different things involved with it besides, you know, how many words were exactly the same. Now, let me also um, give you for Dan Pointer, who is, uh, we actually have both coasts covered. Dan Pointer is in Santa Barbara, California. His website is parapublishing.com, which is P-A-R-A publishing.com. And there is an, an amazing number of um, articles, um, pieces of information that uh, are very, very helpful to a, especially to a new writer and especially to someone who's considering um, self-publishing as well as regular or non-self-publishing. Brian Taylor, his website is numabooks.com, which is spelled P-N-E-U-M-A, P-N-E-U-M-A, numabooks.com. And Dan is also, uh, he's in Baltimore, Maryland, and he is also a uh, seasoned book publishing consultant, and um, he would be a wonderful uh, person to have on your team as well. So, you know, it seems like it really is important, more important than before, to have to uh, have your first step uh, be a book consultant so that you can find out what is best, what's the best route for your type of book and the kind of author that you are. I think you could save lots of uh, money and time and energy and heartbreak to find out what is the um, best way for you to get to see your words in print. And hopefully they will be your words, not the words <laughs> that you saw, <laughs> that your photographic memory imprinted in your brain or that your unconscious uh, also brought out just at the right point in your book. So thank you very much for listening. This has been a fascinating show. I'd like to thank my guests again for uh, sharing all of your wealth of information and you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Come back next week, and uh, we'll have another interesting show for you. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, broadcasting from voiceamerica.com. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.